Welcome to episode seven of the On The Way podcast, uh, a podcast dedicated to a compassionate, inclusive, non-dualistic Christian faith. My name's Dom Fay, and I'm joined, as always, by the very Reverend Dr. Peter Catt. Uh, How are you going, Peter? Uh, Well, thanks, Dom. Nice to be here. Very nice to be here with our first ever international guest on the On The Way podcast, uh, the very Reverend Professor Martin Percy, uh, the Dean of Christ Church in Oxford. Thanks for joining us, Martin. Dom, morning to you. Good to see you. Thank you. And um, Peter as well. Thanks for your welcome to Brisbane. You're very welcome. Yes, welcome to Australia, first off. I mean, you've you've done New Zealand, now you're here in Australia, I believe, is the trip. Is that uh, correct? That's kind of right. Yes, we started actually in uh, Sydney, and then we worked our way up to uh, Budrum, and then yep. uh, back down to New Zealand, and then uh, we've done Canberra, Brisbane, and then Sydney. But this is my third or maybe fourth trip to Australia. So. Right. And mm. what's been the highlight of this trip? Oh, well, uh, you, you know, your amusing winter weather, which is actually better than our summers, of course. <laughs> so people are constantly apologizing for the cold. And I'm, you know, really thinking I could be wandering around the streets here in shorts. And I'd be thinking I was back in England and, mm. and, and having a pretty good summer day, really. Yeah. So weather's a highlight. Meeting people's a highlight. Sampling the churches, scenery, wildlife. We, we just love your wildlife. We've had... Um, we went to uh, sort of rural Queensland and had uh, a few days in a place called Barney's Creek. And we saw in the wild uh, koala, platypus, plenty of platypus, um, and uh, some wallabies and some kangaroos. Now, for us as British tourists, that's really great. But actually, it's been extraordinary to, to meet lots of Australians who say, I've never seen platypus in the wild. Mm, I yeah. certainly haven't. Okay, well, we have. <laughs> Only so. at a zoo. So you're, you're one step ahead of me. Okay, just one. <laughs> well, I often find that's the the way with tourists. They see a lot more of the country than people who live here do. Yeah. Um, we are recording this uh, at midday on a Sunday, just after the uh, morning service at uh, St. John's Cathedral in uh, in Brisbane, um, where you have just preached, Martin, this morning. Do you uh, do you think maybe it's a good way to start to give a summary of what you've spoken on this morning? That might lead us into into where we're moving? Sure. So I was taking the uh, gospel theme this morning, which is uh, Jesus's extraordinary uh, encounter with the uh, Canaanite woman, sometimes known as the Syrophoenician woman, depending on which translation you read. And uh, the exchange where uh, Jesus uh, effectively refers to her as a dog. And uh, and uh, the woman replies by saying, oh, yeah, but even the dogs under the table will get the crumbs, really. And uh, she's off to the healing of her daughter, really. So I was reflecting on the the fact, really, that uh, dogs are really the most important thing in this passage, really, not not the persistence of the woman so much, uh, nor is it particularly a discourse about prayer. It hinges on this notion of, of what a dog represents to both her community and Jesus' community. So this healing is taking place in Gentile territory, where dogs on the whole are welcome and pets in much the same way that they would be these days in the developed world. But to a Jewish audience... Um, uh, a dog is unclean, uh, would not be allowed uh, in the temple courts or the synagogue courts, and would certainly be banned from most homes uh, simply because uh, they couldn't be sure of its uh, purity. So there's something here about um, the sense in which Jesus, as I uh, referred to him, is, is, is the body language of God. He's actually, uh, by virtue of the way he behaves, is doing something about the heart and mind of God for these Gentiles, really. And I said that it's not a question of inclusion or exclusion, uh, because these days in church politics, inclusion is often used as a very kind of trendy liberal code for all comers uh, welcome. Exclusion is often used um, as a counter-narrative for saying the church needs to put the walls up and be clear about who's in. 
what I said was actually that if you looked carefully at the, Jesus, at the ministry of Jesus and the kingdom of God project that he inaugurates, it's about a different word. It's about incorporation. That is mm. the blending together. Humanity, divinity, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. These are the things that are in the ministry of Jesus and in, they're in the early church. It's a blended mix of, of incorporation in which everybody's brought into this body, not in an undiscerning way, but in a way in which everybody's treated equally and lovingly and welcomed, uh, because that's actually what God's table looks like in the kingdom of God. Well, Peter, you and I were just briefly discussing uh, Martin's message before we recorded. What, what were your thoughts on it? What did you take out of it? Um, I thought incorporation was a, a brilliant term to introduce to the discourse, um, particularly the discourse we're having in Australia at the moment. Uh, here we are, we're in the height of the same-sex uh, marriage plebiscite debate and, um, and also the debate about where Muslim people fit into Australia and there's a lot of divisive... Uh, uh, discourse, as well as, uh, as Martin would say, a lot of trendy liberal uh, pushing that we just exercise a form of tolerance, really, and it's one of my least favourite words, uh, tolerance, whereas the word incorporation is a really deep, deep word, and um, Martin was referring to the reading from Romans, which talks about people being grafted onto the tree, as well as the, the gospel reading, and I thought... For, for Australia, what an image to hold mm. up of us being like a tree where the you can't discern where the branches came from. Uh, and that's our, that's our best story of ourselves. Australia has this amazing, rich tapestry of humanity that has really been woven so deeply in together. You really can't often... Um, uh, decide which parts of our culture have come from where. There's, it really is this tree that exists as a symbiosis between cultures. And if we could hold that image and, pour, and uh, proclaim that image uh, more often, I think we would be adding um, a really positive layer to the discourse that's happening in Australia. So I found... Um, Martin's words really quite encouraging and it will, will, certainly, will certainly help me in my public role of, uh, of discourse in this really quite troubling time. Well, let me just respond to Peter because I think that's, that's very helpful to hear and I hadn't really uh, quite seen it as, as a sort of parable of uh, Australian culture and its origins, but uh, it would certainly lend itself to that. And the advantage of a word like incorporation is it's so deeply linked to uh, incarnation. And one of the things I uh, mentioned in the sermon was that, of course, uh, Jesus doesn't just come to anywhere. He comes to a place which is occupied territory, where uh, the woof and the weave, as it were, of uh, the different cultures and races in first century Palestine uh, requires, in a sense, uh, not only the ministry of Jesus, but also the early church at Pentecost to be multilingual, multicultural. Uh, and it's not just about proclamation, it's about receptivity as well. That's the crucial thing. It's about receiving these tongues and understanding that some of these will not be ones you understand or speak, but they're nonetheless part of the church. So it's the whole thing, in a sense, about uh, recognizing that blended together, uh, we are one and we are stronger. Uh, but, of course, there's too much talk in the church these days about you know cutting off branches and uh, severing this and you know, even sometimes losing roots. 
these are not really the things it seems to me that belong to the gospel and certainly the new testament and certainly the world of paul and his theology so how does that approach to incorporation how does that differ from i guess what you mentioned the inclusive uh, approach that a lot of churches try to to pride themselves on i guess on like a definition term how are those two things different they're different because I think of the uh, word that Peter used a moment ago. Um, it's too easy to, as it were, cash out early and just assume that inclusion means tolerance, and that tolerance therefore uh, means that uh, you know anything goes, and that uh, no sort of uh, you know vetting or uh, exercise of discernment uh, needs to be put in place. Uh, that's not what the church is about either. And we need to remember that incorporation is 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 a hard one thing for the early church. Um, in a, a earlier thing this month, um, uh, I was talking about uh, the four stages of ecclesial life uh, from uh, the work of Louis Bermejo, where he says, well, you know, it's, it, it's communication, it's conflict, it's consensus, it's communion. What Bermejo says, though, is conflict is an essential stage of the spirit and that you don't get any creeds, you don't even get actually the canon of the New Testament without people arguing about the content and the quality of what could go into that over a very, very long period of time. Uh, the creeds are exactly the same. If, of course, you imagine the whole thing just arrived, as it were, uh, like a fax or a PDF file overnight, you know, in its current form, well, that's too bad, really. But most people will have the sense to know that even things like the New Testament uh, actually com compose and crystallize over a very, very long period of time. The human and spiritual process behind that is a parable for what the church is struggling with and it shows us that actually conflict in the end is worth it but all parties need to be faithful reading up uh on you a little bit before the podcast martin i did notice that you have been an advocate for um conflict might be the right word for the ability to hold conflict in church communities to be able to hold different opinions and not not let that split um communities that it is something that does seem to be lacking from um, church communities and, and churches as a whole at the moment. Why do you think there is that inability to, to hold different opinions? Why do you think there is, the, I guess, the fear of that? Well, we certainly struggle with this in the Church of England, and I wouldn't surprise me if you struggled with it in the Australian church as well. But what I've tried to advocate for in my writings is essentially what I would call a synergy between emotional and ecclesial intelligence and to see that differences are not necessarily permanent, um, and that living with differences is possible. So let me give you two little analogies here. Um, one uh, drawn from the world, if you like, of uh, diet or food. Now, it seems to me that uh, most restaurants you go to these days uh, will give you a vegetarian option. And uh, you might say, in a sense, that this is the beginning, if you like, of a parable for what the church might be. And if you always go to a restaurant and always eat the vegetarian option, nobody will mind that. You could push it further and say, if you actually wanted to go to that restaurant and insist that you sat separately in the restaurant and ate your vegetarian food, um, that would be fine. What you can't do, though, is go to a vegetarian restaurant and insist on ordering a rare steak, because that's offensive. And you can't actually go to a vegetarian restaurant and insist that actually everybody goes vegetarian. So one of the things the church must wrestle with here, it seems to me, is uh, the sense in which what is uh, desirable, welcome diversity, and what kind of liberty of conscience will we permit people within our church to opt out yet remain in? One could apply the same logic to um, the smoking ban. 
I mean, this year, this month actually, is the 10th anniversary in England and the UK of the smoking ban. Now, the smoking ban is a piece of legislation grant, uh, you know, grounded in equality that says for everybody to have access to the same kind of space, uh, all of these public places, public transport, restaurants, trains, you name it, they're all smoke-free. What you don't say is, well, we're going to ban smoking, but we're now going to say that we're going to reintroduce no-smoking carriages, so every carriage that's not no-smoking you can smoke in, or this chain of restaurants will now become smoking, um, because actually inclusion and generosity and equality become, in a sense, the bedrock of what it means to hold a diverse society together. You can't stop society becoming more diverse. We're more culturally compressed as citizens of the world than we've ever been before through social media and through travel. And the church is struggling, um, as many institutions are now, with enormous ranges of diversity. What we need, therefore, is a proper conversation in the church that says, if you want to stay in the church but opt out, you can do it. What you can't do, though, is make the church an entirely opt-out zone uh, which is at odds with the world. That's mm. what you can't do. Well, this does move us into, uh, I guess, the theme of this discussion, which is the future of the church. Um, Martin, I did read in an article you wrote recently uh, a few quotes. You said, We live in an era where many cherish spirituality, but are less sure about organized religion, where people assemble their own bespoke collation of beliefs rather than accepting the set menu. And then you went on to say that there is no overarching grand narrative to hold society together anymore. Religions and ideologies have been replaced by fragmentary spiritualities and posturing political opinions. Um, now, Peter, we've discussed on this podcast at length uh, your, I guess, dismay at the move towards individualism um, away from community. Do you see these two things as, as inherently linked? The, I guess the, the move away from, uh, I guess, community worship and community beliefs um, alongside the individualism movement? Yeah, I think they are they are linked, and um, we're all the poorer for it. Um, we're certainly being enriched by uh, the liberation from control uh, that happened in the past. But I think I think we're at risk of losing our very humanity. Um, you know, the orthodox the orthodox tell us that we become a person in community, and how we discover our personhood. Um, without being in community, I think, is one of the huge challenges of our time because um, the individual, the individual um, life can become one of just deciding who you want to be rather than who you are. And you know, from a Christian point of view, as I understand it, is um, we, are, we are a unique individual who is called to be that person in community and that's what baptism is all about that we actually celebrate the gift of a person and they're incorporated to um, or, or we celebrate their incorporation I think they're incorporated before their baptism but we celebrate their incorporation into this uh, faith community that has a story um, but a story that's not as tight as maybe we used to think it uh, was um, maybe a richer story, a story that has a few very simple guideposts about love and authenticity and and purpose and virtue. Um, and you know, I'm just not sure where we'll end up if we keep severing our connection to community. 
the same time, we need to find different ways to build community. I mean, you know, fa Facebook does build a sense of community. People uh, disparage social media, but you know, my experience of it is that it's actually reconnected me with people I went to school with. And, and so we live in a really quite um, mixed time, I have to say. But at the end, I think the church first and foremost should be offering people a place of community where they can truly find themselves. Thinking back to your early days um, as a minister, Peter, do you, comparing that to now and the congregation you, you served then to now, uh, are there noticeable difference culturally in how they viewed the, the church or their role in the church or their church in general? Or, or do you think it hasn't changed that drastically in that time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, last century, when I was ordained, um, I think I think there was still a sense that the church was uh, seen as a as a central part of societal life. Um, uh, that's certainly one of the things that has declined in in these days. I think people in the church haven't changed too much. Um, and that may be one of the challenges that faces us. Um, we don't want to become uh, more and more isolated from the rest of community. And so how we build those connections into the wider community so that the wider community can speak to us as a prophet and can shape us. Because um, there are lots of, you know, the, the, the tradition reminds us that often it's the external voice that speaks to the centre that we have to be listening to. I would see it um, in slightly different ways to Peter, though I don't dissent from what he said. So I think uh, one of the things that uh, shaped uh, religion in public life in the developed world over the last sort of um, 75 years, let's say the post-war era, um, is that uh, religion has moved from being uh, something that was part of a culture of assumption to being a culture of consumption. So it's now something that people tend to choose rather than they feel, as it were, uh, is given to them. Uh, it's no longer a, a utility. It's something that people can uh, opt into. It's a rather different thing. So now underneath this, I think one of the strange things that's happening to emerging generations is... Uh, concepts of duty uh, which have now shifted from being to, uh, well into something that's much more about optionality so people will say well you know I've, I'll come if I want but you know I don't have to come because actually uh, duty uh, as a term and as a concept has rather deteriorated in that sense so sometimes sociologists religion like to say that actually one of the stories of the last 75 years is not that we've become more secular I think we haven't um, that actually the axis between religion and spirituality has tilted more in favour of spirituality than religion. And I would say too, on top of that, that um, if you take concepts of uh, duty, uh, whatever denomination you're in, uh, holy days of obligation, red letter days, public holidays that were religion, and um, what sociologists call the performance of people in the pews has changed. So people used to say when they went to church regularly, by that they meant they went every week. Actually, if you go back more than 75 years ago, they went twice on Sundays. And if you go back 100 years ago, it was, you know, and in midweek as well. Now to go regularly means I might manage three in five. Uh, I probably won't go in the midweek. Uh, Epiphany will be the nearest Sunday to January the 6th, but I'm not going to come out on, on January the 6th. 
Um, Ascension Day, well, that's that's good for the clergy, but actually it's a busy working day for me. It was a full public holiday when I was a child, uh, Ascension Day. So that's one thing. Now, you could look at that and sort of wring your hands and despair and rent your garments, but I, I, I do see signs of hope. And the signs of hope I see are in the millennial generation. They're, they're your age, Dom, actually. Um, you know, they don't have uh, terrific memories of the world before social media. In fact, they probably don't remember a world with typewriters. Uh, you know, they only remember computers and handheld gadgets. And what I don't see in millennials are um, explicitly religiously funded values. So it's not we do this because that's what the Christian faith teaches or that's what the Ten Commandments says or that's because what the law says. On the other hand, uh, I see a kinder, fairer, more generous, equitable generation emerging that is profoundly more sensitive and in many ways far more moral than the children that I grew up with when I was a child. Now, you can track this actually very simply if you just look at um, things like swear words and their history over the last 50 years. Now, a polling organisation in the UK for the last, uh, well, for roughly that time, has been every two years now polling swear words in order of offensiveness. It's like a kind of pop chart, if you like, a sort of top 25 swear words. Well, the top three never change, F word, C word, and so forth. But when I was a child, um, any racial derogatory term never made the top 25. You could call people all kinds of things in relation to their religion or the colour of their skin. Without fear of censor, you could find that on TV and you could find it in the cinema. And you could be sexist, you could be racist. Um, and uh, these things were on the whole the, the, uh, the, you know, the substance of humour, by and large. Um, Words like bum, on the other hand, were seen as quite rude. Now, if I hear somebody call somebody a bum now, I think, huh, that's a bit old, isn't it? A bit old-fashioned. My parents used to think that uh, to say bloody hell was the height of swearing. My mum still does. Does she? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, that's good to know. You see, some standards never change. But now, you see, if I hear a, an undergraduate at uh, Christchurch in Oxford say bloody hell, I think I've been transported to a 1970s theme evening. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, it's just extraordinary. But... That generation, the ones who are now in the classrooms and the lecture theatres um, of, you know, Oxford University, University of Oxford in, you know, in 2017, they have zero toleration for homophobia, sexism, racism, anything that smacks of inequality. They're keenly sensitised to these things. The interesting thing about these things is that these things are resourced out of a profound spirituality that is both... Uh, rooted in humanity and at the same time comprehends that there may be something actually uh, about God but they're actually not rooting this in institutional religion. I, I, from my own experience I think social media has played some part yeah. of a role in that in that it connects you to people and communities that without it you would never see so you yeah. know for example, in America, the Black Lives Matter movement mm. that's been happening, I would never have known about that in a pre-social media world, but you're able to, to build empathy because you actually experience it and get to know these people and their stories. Um, it's interesting, Martin, you, you wrote uh, in your book that I think came out this year, The Future Shapes of Anglicanism. Yeah. Um, while discussing the legalization of same-sex marriage, you said... Whilst the nation has turned its face towards justice, integrity, and equality, our senior church leaders have turned the other way. 
And you went on to say, our crusading conservatism has left the church looking self-righteous, sour, mean-spirited, and isolated. If the younger generation is one that is, uh, I guess, compelled to social justice and compelled to compassion, do you think this is what's making the church seem somewhat irrelevant to them? Absolutely. And, you know, I would say, you know, the church needs to get with the program. It needs to get with the agenda. Um, It's very hard to conceive of uh, many young people uh, returning to the church or taking the church seriously until it can demonstrate um, uh, an absolutely passionate commitment to uh, justice and uh, social equality of all kinds, really. And let's not forget that, you know, in the 1960s, and indeed earlier, if you go back into the history of the Church of England, many of our bishops, not our congregations, but many of our bishops were at the uh, leading edge for reforming uh, divorce law, uh, for reforming um, uh, laws on uh, abortion and on censorship. They, they took a lead, and uh, the lead was towards social inclusion and tolerance. Currently, uh, we have a leadership. It's just beginning to pivot at the moment, because I think the church leaders are beginning to realize that missionally to oppose equality and to oppose inclusion and incorporation is is just a strategy for further self-marginalization and ultimately your own alienation. So they're beginning to change and see that actually, in the end, the church has to actually serve the people where they are uh, and find Christ in these relationships which you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, they wouldn't have recognized as being bona fide and normal uh, and certainly wouldn't have celebrated them. But now, of course, we have, um, you know, people uh, of the same sex, you know, married in civil partnerships. They're in the church. You know, they're not outside. They're in the church. And they're saying, we want to be honored here publicly and affirmed publicly for what we are and not, as it were, stashed in a closet or simply not discussed. There does seem to be a bit of a split within the Christian church with, you know, uh, not to simplify it, but let's just say one half uh, seemingly intent on holding society back from uh, from progression in, in compassion and social justice in these movements and being maybe one step behind culture and another half uh, trying to lead culture, trying to show culture, you know, to be more compassionate, more loving. I remember, Peter, when you were on the, the project a few years ago talking about the sanctuary movement for asylum seekers, a friend of mine said that in the media said that they thought it was the first time they'd seen a Christian leader in the media for positive reasons, mm. you know, pushing mm. love rather than the, the hate we regularly get, uh, particularly around the same-sex marriage plebiscite. Uh, speaking of, of trying to bring people together, bring the church together to an extent, how do we deal with... Uh, it's quite a quite a large divide between people who want to, you know, be more loving than society and people who seem to to want to be less. Um, yeah, it it's one of the things that occupies my mind a lot, and I think I think it it's actually comes back to the word tolerance. Um, th- those who um, wish to push for the more progressive, if you like, agenda, which is the majority of the church. I mean, you know, all, the, all the surveys show time and again, say, on the issue of marriage equality, the majority of Christians are in favour of it. So we've got this huge... Uh, the, the majority of the church wishes for us to push forward on such issues, and it's based on the desire for equality and justice and the like. 
that same group of people, because they are open to the other, um, want to find a place for those who want to exclude. And those who want to exclude don't want to have a place for those who want to be open. And so there's this ridiculous um, game going on, which I think um, leads to our leadership remaining silent. And um, I'm absolutely on board with what Martin said about, you know, last century it was the bishops who led the charge for the ordination of women in our church. And if the bishops hadn't been part of the leadership, um, you know, if it hadn't been at very critical stages, the bishops that had pushed for it, we wouldn't have the ordination of women today. And, um, and sadly, I have to say that um, you know, if we were facing that um, issue now, I'm not sure we would get the ordination of women. But I too see the worm beginning to change. And I, th I think it's because we need to understand that um, the one thing you can't tolerate is intolerance and you actually have to stand up to the intolerant because if you cede too much territory to them, they will exclude the rest of us who are open and um, want, wanting to practice incorporation. And I think we have for too long tried to keep the ship together by not upsetting those who don't want to practice incorporation and I think the time is getting closer and closer where we have to uh, it's really to echo the stuff that Martin was saying before you you just if you don't want to be part of the program that's okay and our church has been re very good at um, allowing people to withdraw while being part of the whole so we still have clergy who don't believe in the ordination of women and wouldn't have a woman preach in their church and we still have clergy who don't practice the remarriage of divorcees but the church as a whole does those things and I think we're, you know, this issue of marriage equality at the moment has brought us to the point where um, we have to get to the point where we say well the church as in the laos the people actually want this just as much as the rest of mm. the world does the rest of australia does we're going to do this we're going to support this we're going to find a way to celebrate same-sex marriage or practice marriage equality in the church there will be those of you who don't wash, wish to go down this track fine but you're not going to hold the rest of us back. The gospel, you know, I long for the day when the church is actually at the forefront, mm. as, you know, as it has been at times in the past. You know, the, the abolition of slavery, um, it was you know, a whole bunch of Christians that really, really pushed for that. And I think that the gospel has actually informed the millennials in a way, because it's informed culture, um, that they actually get they actually get what it's about. And you know, when I do speak at marriage equality rallies and when I advocate for refugees and I talk to the journalists who, again, tend to be millennials, they say to me things like, oh, you're just doing what Jesus said <laughs> to do. Now, these people give me the sort of the summary of the law and say, isn't this what you're doing is advocating that we should love one another. And I think, wow, here's this person who probably has had no real church upbringing 
but has heard enough about the gospel that you know the, the summary version is out there that Jesus said to love and then they say to me things like I don't think I'll ever be a member of the church but it's great to see someone in the church doing what the church should do exactly what your friend said mm. you know? and and I just long for the day when more often than not there are church leaders who are saying yes we do stand up for refugees which by the way is one of the areas where the church is is actually leading but we stand up for you know, marriage equality we stand up for overturning inequality in the social structure we actually have something really positive to say about how the culture has become pear-shaped because the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and to call out the neocon narrative and say there is a richer narrative which is about incorporation and about wholeness and about people finding their purpose in community. Yeah. There does seem to be, uh, in the, the people I speak to in my generation, uh, certainly a, a compulsion, that, uh, a call to love. Uh, that is the compelling message, that, that this idea of unifying and, and, and loving is still compelling, but it is not what is provided by the church. And, and that's why many of my friends would not you know, uh, attend a church, because in their mind, the church is the opposite of that. The church is what is intent on holding society back. And I know that uh, The Guardian had an article last year in the UK, Martin, saying that um, the decline of the Church of England will continue. It's expected for three decades and that an 81-year-old is eight times more likely to attend church than a 21-year-old. Um, do you do you put this loss of relevance, Martin, largely down to uh, a church which doesn't embrace the love or do you think it is more cultural in the sense of of people not wanting to belong to an institution i think it's a little bit of both i think there's no question that in the developed world um we're we're living in a post-institutional age Uh, people don't belong to things in the way that they used to Um, writers like robert putnam in his book bowling alone have pointed this out that actually he used to talk about the uh, the electronic hearth that's glowing in the corner of every room living room uh you know in in the house by which he meant the television and uh putnam points out that, you know actually tv in the early 1950s did for uh lots of institutional activities that used to cement american neighborhoods and now no longer do they've become options once again so it's a little bit about what's happened to institutions it's a little bit about social media and uh the commodification of society uh, lots of choice uh, which means people, of course, can do what they like, largely as individuals. They're empowered to do that. The church, of course, does itself no favours in this by then uh, looking at that and then choosing a line to pursue, which is fundamentally alienating and uh, contrary to uh, the uh, standards, ethics and uh, values of uh, many millennials. So the church needs to do two things, it seems to me. One, it needs to find other ways of celebrating being together. It needs to recognize that in this uh, rich, developed world that we've got, people's experience of alienation and loneliness is arguably even more pronounced. Mm. And therefore, gathering people around food, around celebration, um, helping them together with people to confront uh, bereavement and loss and doing other things are incredibly important. But this won't necessarily lead to people becoming members and joiners. What it does mean is that the church emerges as a place where people know that they can go and get company, and company that is compassionate and empathetic, 
uh, to where they're at. The other side of this, of course, is the church actually fixing itself in its heart and its head about what it means actually to be in a genuinely incorporative body. I mean, there's one uh, very interesting thing going on at the moment in um, Harvard Divinity School, um, a very interesting piece of work that's looking at some of the the new groups to emerge. They're not particularly religious. They're quite spiritual, though. So one of my favorite ones is Dinner Party. Now, Dinner Party is a move that's uh, swept across America. It gathers people in their 20s, maybe their early 30s, who've all got one thing in common. Uh, They've experienced profound loss, a sister, a brother, a parent. But they're living in cities far away from their folks, far away from their siblings. They don't know their neighbours, and they can't talk about these things at work. So what they do in dinner party is, with food that's homemade and a little bit of ritual, they gather people every week. And on principles rather like Alcoholics Anonymous, it becomes your turn, Dom, to talk about your loss. It's your week. It's your story. And someone's provided the food. And people gather around you. Now, in our cities, which are becoming bigger and fuller, these are really enriching and good things. But until the church actually can comprehend that actually it's first and foremost a gathering place for people to confront suffering, intensify joy, make a home, cross a boundary, uh, do things together, but also look upwards towards the God who made and created us all. Until we can do that, we're going to be mired in these really, I think, distracting and quite pointless debates about sexuality and gender. And millennials will look at us with growing incomprehension and indifference. It does seem, uh, from the research that is out there, I was reading a piece just recently about this, that uh, there is a loneliness epidemic that is just increasing where social media has replaced social interaction for many people and actually creates a life of comparison where you're constantly comparing what you're doing to what people on social media are doing and feel quite lonely in the process. So I suppose you could say there is a, a stronger spiritual hunger maybe than ever before, um, but people are not finding that satisfied in the church. And I know, Martin, in the UK, um, the Church of England has been pushing the Renewal and Reform Program, which you have been uh, at odds with at times. Can you give us a a little bit of background info about that approach to to try to solve this problem? Yeah, in some ways, it's quite closely related to what I was saying a moment ago, that the idea that actually what the church needs um, in in modernity is uh, management theory, uh, greater forms of sort of executive organisation, uh, a concentration on aims, objectives, outcomes, particularly measurable results as a way of assessing whether the church is fulfilling its objectives and goals. Uh, these things, uh, you know, in management theory um, and in the world of MBAs and certainly in the world of higher education have largely been left behind. Of course, it's a perfect time, therefore, for the church to pick them up, <laughs> you know, 10, 15 years too late than everybody else. And, of course, you know, Jesus is not really for quantity. Jesus is for quality. Uh, The point about Christianity is to be faithful, not to be successful. Mm. And so my criticism of renewal and reform is that uh, nearly every single trajectory and pulse in reform and renewal is uh, a rather rehashed sort of 1980s post-capitalist, largely sort of executive management tool, which, of course, many people find a Uh, incredibly oppressive Um, they just manipulate workforces and they turn people into instruments for producing uh, apparently greater productivity and growth 
I'm not sure what that's got to do with the church. It seems to have nothing to do with the kingdom of God as I read it. So what's the, the alternative model going forward that you would propose? Do you, do you have um, an idea of that, or is it instead more of a, a space you're still navigating? No, I think the scriptures help us, don't they? I mean, I think when Jesus tells a story about a seed and a sower, uh, we are entitled to read that uh, figuratively and literally. Some people have parishes which are just full of stones, and you can do as much work as you like on the ground for evangelism. Nothing will happen, nothing will grow, because it's rocky ground. The work of mission and ministry, therefore, is to get the rocks out of the ground until the soil, until it's fertile. There are other parishes where you can do almost anything, and it all works. And what we need in the church is a generosity across our fields, where we recognize that actually we're all doing the same thing in the work of the kingdom. But some will actually get great harvests. Some will have very little to show for what they do. And in fact, their successor's successor may not have much to show for that. Mm. But if, of course, you only value, if you only value the people that can produce immediate growth, you will skew what the church is and skew what mission and ministry is. And you will alienate, I'm guessing, three quarters of your clergy and your congregations because they won't be able to show the same results and achieve the same value. That seems quite iniquitous to me. So go back to the scriptures, see what God teaches about the kingdom of God. Uh, There are some really interesting parables that Jesus tells about rural life, which are instructing us about mission and ministry. Let's get with that program and let's see how we cherish one another. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's interesting, the, the managerial approach you talk about. Having sat on uh, a church council before and grown up in a church where my father was the pastor, it seems the the indication has always been congregation size. You know, by this year, we're going to hit 1,000 members. And it actually, uh, the discussion never comes into, you know, what are they, these people's lives going to be like? How are we going to interact with them? How are we going to love them? It's just... Uh, growth. It's a chart with a PowerPoint presentation. Have we hit our growth? It is a business approach. Peter, I'm interested to know, as as a contrary to that, how do you know when, I guess, the life of your church is healthy? How do you, what are your measurements? What are your, I guess, gauges to know that, that this is tracking well? This is, this is in a a good spot. Um, No, not many measurements, I have to say. It's, it's really based on narrative. Um, what I what I look for is for is to hear people talking about how they are finding how they fit with the program that's the unfolding of the Commonwealth of God and I call it the Commonwealth of God because we live in the Commonwealth of Australia and the idea is that um, <clears throat> that the Jesus program is meant to redefine the place in which you find yourself. And so I look, I look for people talking about how their lives are finding purpose, um, how they feel energised and at home. Um, so I look for signs that the community is doing a good job and the community is actually reflecting on, on how to do welcome. So we've had that program for about a year and a half now, including how we give people who come for space, how we give them space without overwhelcoming them so that there's actually a, an openness so that people who come find 
the place they're looking for and also just how we're um, how we're making um, touches into the community and so and and for what's emerging you know, for me I think emergence is one of the most important principles you know God God has a mission God's doing stuff stuff happens and we need to attend to it one of the one of our favorite stories of emergence here at the cathedral was a few years ago uh, a bunch of people could see that we had a whole bunch of uh, mums pushing uh, strollers around outside the cathedral and in the park over the road and so there was a decision that we should set up a play group and the play group uh, was set up with great fanfare and people gathered to resource the play group and the first week uh, one young mum came with a toddler and she had a conversation that she needed to have and we didn't see her again because she we had attended to what she wanted from the church mm. next week there was a carer with one kid same deal third week fourth week fifth week sixth week uh, no young kids no carers but a whole bunch of people who'd come to help, having coffee together, discovering there are a whole bunch of other people who were looking for a way in, somewhere to have coffee, uh, and that's how Coffee on Wednesdays started. Now, if we'd had KPIs about playgroups and success, we would have shut it down after week six because it hadn't achieved its objective. Mm. It was never a playgroup. It's, it's actually played a playgroup role a couple of times in its three or four year life, but it's actually coffee on Wednesdays. And out of coffee on Wednesdays, because the people were attending to who, uh, who was there turning up, we discovered there are a whole bunch of foreign students who were coming because they discovered that we were a safe place to come and practice English. And so that gave birth to English conversation classes. So here we have two ministries that started off because people were looking for a way to connect, but two ministries that emerged out of what was really required. Now, if we'd had the sort of managerial structure with KPIs and all that sort of stuff, we would have neither of those two ministries. Mm. And so attending, you know, the, the Greek liturgy starts off with the word, let us attend and you know tend to the divine so you learn to do that in worship with the hope that you actually learn to do it in everyday life so one of the strengths so what i look for is a community that is attending now the whole heap of those people who come to english conversation class and coffee on wednesdays don't come to any form of worship but they feel like they belong here mm. But there are many churches which would say the end goal has to be to get them in the congregation numbers. Indeed. But we're about building the kingdom. We're not about building the congregation. You know, it's the commonwealth of God we're looking for. So here are these people who find themselves, some of them are really quite lonely people mm. who have found the gift of communities. It's just like Martin was saying. It's about building community first. I agree. I think, you know, I'm mindful of uh, some words from John Robinson. All the church was ever meant to be was the constructor's hut on God's building site, which is the world. And we too often assume that the project that Jesus intended was building the church. 
Um, but actually, Jesus is not a synagogue planter. He's not a synagogue grower. Um, he doesn't spend much time in those congregations. His work's the kingdom of God. And most of the effective ministry I see is very much like the way that uh, uh, Peter describes it. These are initiatives that do food banks, credit unions, uh, work with vulnerable adults. Uh, they don't result necessarily uh, directly in growing congregational numbers. Are they authentic signs of Christ's love for the world and the kingdom? Absolutely, yes. Is that what the church should do and be about? Absolutely. So if there are churches out there, which, you know, there definitely would be who are, you know, working on 10-year plans or worried about the dwindling numbers and, and what their next step is going to be, and, you know, there is that temptation to move towards this goal of this many people will be worshipping here or, or whatever it is, do you have an alternative, uh, I guess, vision that you could pitch, Martin, to, to those churches of, of what they should be aiming for instead of this managerial success type approach? What could What could these churches be aiming to to move towards and aiming to become what is what does real christian growth look like in them uh real christian growth is natural organic it's rooted in communities it's authentic it's about attending as peter was saying a moment ago it's about uh, listening to god and it's about being faithful it might not be about being successful if by success we mean numerical growth some of the most faithful uh, wonderful, beautiful Christian congregations that I have encountered are really quite small and they don't have plans to get bigger. But what they do do in their community, they punch miles above their weight. And that seems to me to be the fundamental task at the end of the day. What is Christ calling us to do and be in this area? And it might not be to mass up and get bigger. It might actually be to reach out to the community and be something completely different which actually does not involve becoming a larger body of people. That does seem at odds with the institution that you both belong to, which, you know, is is a, at, at some level trying to find ways to keep people as congregations giving money and, and you know, uh, I guess continuing to, to build churches, grow churches. Peter, when you're operating in that context, in the institutional context, um, what can you do, what can... I guess, what can you do to make the church relevant when maybe some people in the institution are more concerned with the, the numbers that come through at the end of the month? Well, it's one of the privileges of, of being the dean of a cathedral in that the, you know, people do look to the cathedral to see how it operates and what they might uh, glean from that. Um, and and I, I think this is a, it's really a matter of focus of it. I mean, our experience has been by focusing on things like refugees and advocating for marriage equality, we have seen the congregation grow. But we don't, we're not doing it to make the congregation grow. We're doing it because that is what we see as the gospel imperative. Mm -hmm. So when we declared sanctuary here a year and a half ago for the Nauruan refugees and some from Manus, um, there were people who found themselves in this building for the um, first time ever because of what we were proclaiming. And they've come back. In, you know, Some people come back now just to sit in the building. They're still not members of the community as such. But we've had people join, join our congregations as a result of it. But we didn't do it for them to join. And we would have done it even if no one had joined. It's about mm. being, as Martin says, it's about being faithful. 
So one pursues what one understands the gospel as demanding of one, and some people will join, but even if they don't, we're doing what we're called to do. And it's almost like perhaps the the closer the church is to the truth of the gospel, the more compelling the message yeah. will always be. Yeah, and it's um, like you know the early the early Roman church. One of the things that made it grow was that it buried the dead. Mm. You know, it, the people who'd been thrown on the streets for the death, you know, the dead collector, you know, the Monty Python, you know, bring out your dead guy. Um, the Christians went around, picked up the bodies, and buried them. And they didn't say, we're going to go and bury the dead so that people will think we're great and come to church. They buried the dead because they saw the bodies as temples of the spirit and that therefore needed to be treated with honour, whereas the Roman culture was just seeing them as refuse. And as a result of that, people said, why do you guys do that? And then they were able to say, well, because of the incarnation, we think bodies are special, and, and people then joined the church but they weren't out there thinking we're going to have a, a bury the dead program so that we grow the church we're going to bury the dead because the dead should be buried with reverence and i think i think it's just the head thing is is stop thinking about church growth and just get on with it and sometimes people will come because you've done that sometimes they won't but it, that's not what the program is mm. Yeah, that's that's great. And um, maybe to wrap up, then Martin, I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't mind getting your thoughts just as a bit of pie in the sky thinking. Um, if you were to have a glimpse into, let's say, a hundred years time, um, the the Christian message has uh, endured through throughout history to this point. What do you think the Christian Church might look like? If it, you know, continues to transform, if it continues to to move with society and and stay relevant in the the sense of that call to love, what do you think it might look like in a hundred years' time? Can you could you speculate? Always the easy questions to end with. Hey, mm, very good. <laughs> well, it depends what's happening in the world, doesn't it? And who can predict what kind of uh, things will uh, happen as a result of uh, you know ecology, climate change, uh, you know, political vociferousness, and so forth. But let's assume a steady state for the moment and let's assume that we're all still alive and kicking and the world's basically a decent place to live in a hundred years' time. If it is, then my prediction is as follows. Uh, churches will be a little bit leaner numerically. They will have found their place in society as agents of social change. They'll be full of passionate, committed people who know actually how to bring about good in the world. That's what they'll be. And there'll still be places that know how to intensify joy, confront suffering, make homes for people that are feeling alienated, homeless and alone. And there'll be places that enable people to cross boundaries so that they are actually places that really educate people into transformation. They should be, in the end, places that are exemplary incubators of citizenship. That's what they should be. Mm. And in the end, if they can become that, then actually uh, we might find that the churches are rather fuller than I was describing a moment ago. And uh, I might finish on a quote of yours, Martin, that I found researching. Uh, you, you said that those who aren't religious will not be won over to return to the church by increasingly organisational, theologically narrow and voguish sectarian expressions of faith. Instead, there needs to be a broad church, capacious and generous. And I think that sums up what you've just been speaking about. Yep, big tent. <laughs> Churches are marquees for God. 
<laughs> yeah, they've got oh, roofs, but they've got no sides. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Martin. It's been a great conversation. Uh, thank you for coming on. Pleasure. Great to see you. Thank you, Peter, too. Thank you, Dom. Thank you, Martin. Thank uh, you, Dom. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back with uh, another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.